Welcome to Health After Cancer, a podcast for cancer survivors. I'm Lydia Shapira. I'm a medical oncologist at Stanford and your host for this program. With me today in the studio is Melissa Mills. Melissa is a cancer survivor with a remarkable story, and she's a genetic counselor at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital here at Stanford. Melissa, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really such a privilege to be here and wonderful to see you again. So let's start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your cancer story, which is pretty amazing. And it started pretty early for me, uh, although we didn't know it. So I was diagnosed at 11 months old. So I was my parents' first child, and they took a lot of photos and of me and they said, wow, one eye kind of has this red eye reflex and the other one is really white and bright. And eventually it creeped up enough and got brighter. And so they showed the doctor who lived across the street and he took one look at the photograph and said, I know a guy in Boston, I'm going to make a call. You're going to go tomorrow. And my parents were like, what? Wait. I was their first child. They had no idea what this was. So I went to an ophthalmologist in Boston, and my left eye was removed 48 hours later. So I was treated at Mass Ioneer, and and then my parents had to learn about something called retinoblastoma. Never, no one else in my family had ever had that, but... Yeah, yeah, that's where my story began. And it's played such a big role in who I am today. It's such an interesting thing to think about of uh, what my life wouldn't be like without retinoblastoma. But that's maybe for later in our conversation. Yeah, so so basically I had to remove my eye to make sure the cancer didn't go down my optic nerve. And then they checked my right eye, which I am using currently to look at you, (laughs) to see your smile. And they found multiple tumors in that eye as well. And we found out later that makes a difference. That's called bilateral retinoblastoma, meaning I had the kind that was more dangerous. So the kind that could keep coming back. And that was just a big deal. Even just in 1976, having cancer, it was the C word back then. My parents lost friends. They were afraid it might be catching. They didn't no, they just people just didn't understand and my parents were told that if they had any more children they would also have cancer and then my parents made new friends ones that would bring them a casserole and would listen and would be there for them and those friends are still there for my mom to this day which is amazing so my life kind of went on with me learning how to walk with on, with monocular vision, bumping into things and figuring it out, and then having to go um, to Boston every week and then eventually every month. And they did find some tumors uh, in my right eye, and I got super lucky that they used something called cryotherapy, which was brand new. Um, and for our listeners, that's when they use a freezing probe. And so... It's not a very nice image to think about, about putting something freezy needle in your eye, but it worked. It froze out my tumors. I think there were two, and I have a little scar on the back of my retina, and then it never came back, but we had to make sure. So we went to exams under anesthesia, and so for me, I just had to kind of survive. So I went, and I did everything, and I was the good little 
cancer patient. So my eye doctor said I was the one who didn't scream, who just said, okay, what do we need to do? How do we get through this? Okay. And my first sentence was, don't cry, mommy. So that was hard. It was hard on my parents. They, they struggled. My dad worked really hard, took a job that he didn't really want. So we would have health insurance and worked constantly, some because to pay the bills and some to avoid those big feelings that come up when you can't save your child from the C word. (laughs) And it really was. I mean, to this day, he looks at me and he sees that little child that he couldn't save. And that's really, really hard. Oh, I'm already crying. And how many minutes are we in? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, I think the one other kind of piece that I would love to put into, like, the, the origin story, if that's what this is, is, um, yeah, that I just, I had to keep going and keep checking and I got so lucky because we checked and we checked and it became first it was every week and then every month and then I turned five and my eye doctor he showed up at my front door (laughs) unexpected unannounced and he was standing there with a teddy bear fluffy I still have Fluffy. <laughs> I have a special dress for Fluffy, and Fluffy will stay with me forever. And he came and he said, you're going you're gonna to be okay. And my parents, and it meant so much to me, my family, my parents. And I don't know if he goes to everybody's house. <laughs> but Dr. David S. Walton, I will thank you until the day I die for how how well you cared for me and how he saved my life. And so from then on, I was, I was fine, so to speak. But then, you know, it's, that's what we're here to talk about, right? Is it's not just, you just put a bow on it and put cancer on a shelf and you're all good. So (laughs) that's a remarkable story. Every time I hear it, Melissa, I imagine that your family just never got around to really talking about it. Am I right? Yeah, talking about it was hard. My dad was a very strong police officer type. (laughs) And the only time I would see him cry was when he talked about me and my cancer diagnosis and surviving that. And that is a little bit hard as a child to know that you didn't, do anything wrong but yet you messed up their lives in a lot of ways and to figure that out right to say don't cry mommy I knew I knew that these big things were happening and they were happening because of me and back then there wasn't the same child life stuff there was no make a wish there was no Oh, support for my parents, most importantly, and and then for me, this little kid going through all this with no context. We knew a few other families whose kids had retinoblastoma, and all that they all ended up blind. And there's a survivor's guilt there for both me and my parents. And 
so we didn't really stay friends with those those families and nowadays I would be able to go to a camp <laughs> there's Camp Sunshine in Maine that I hear is amazing and people have realized that those supports those social supports are really the social emotional piece is really important to really surviving cancer right and I I still think about it to this day of how it might have been different and how I want it to be different for other folks. And that's why I want to talk about it, right? They didn't, people didn't talk, talk about cancer in the 70s. And we started to, and it started to be something that, that people realized that we shouldn't just hide away. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we can support each other through these hard things that happen in life. I mean, cancer and other, there's so many different things out there. As you live your life, <laughs> you start to realize that. Yeah, we, we hear from other cancer survivors, and especially those who were very young when they were treated, is that connecting with others and finding a peer group can sometimes also help to sort of process what was a very difficult experience. And I'm curious if you can share with us a little bit about how this um, evolved as you grew. When did you sort of start to go back and think about your cancer history and look for information and try to answer some of the whys and why me? Yeah, it really came to a head for me in college. So I talked to people about, it was a big part of who I am. It was part of the essay that got me into most of my college acceptances. So I did a lot of processing when I was applying to college and thinking about who am I and how much of who I became was because of my cancer. And so I was asked to do a talk for a friend. He was leading a bioethics uh, section at Stanford. And he said, oh, it'd be really great if you could talk about yourself and your hereditary cancer, because I'd always been told you should probably not have children. That was kind of the narrative that I received. Like, well, they would have cancer too. So you need to think hard about that, Melissa. And like, oh, but you're not there yet anyway. So it's fine. So I went to kind of figure things out, to talk intelligently to a bunch of Stanford students who were somewhat my peers. And as I dug deeper, I found out more. I learned about, oh, I have a mutation. I felt cancer was in both of my eyes. And so I kind of found out about all this in a vacuum by myself, just trying to piece together information. Yeah, that's when I really said, oh my goodness, like, this is going to affect me for the rest of my life. It didn't hit me until that moment. And I had this big emotional response as a senior in college. And I had a boyfriend at the time. And I told him, hey, you know, I've done all this research. This is this thing we need to talk about. And I also found out about something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis at that time. So people were working on a way to not pass on a genetic mutation like mine that caused the childhood cancer, the retinoblastoma. And this gave me a little bit of hope because of that narrative of saying, oh, you probably just shouldn't have children. I went, wait, maybe science, maybe we can use, like, be smart about this and I can do this. And so that was huge. And I was talking to my boyfriend at the time and, oh, wow, it was too heavy for him. Like the thinking about children, that's like down the line a ways, right? And then thinking about doing special science experiments to have children, <laughs> that was a lot. And 
he and I ended up breaking up and I realized, wow, like the person who's going to end up with me is going to have to be kind of a person that can deal with all this, right? Like I'm not just Melissa, I'm kind of cancer Melissa, right? Like, and so I think I've told you in the past that I would disclose my survivorship on date two, right? You have your first date. Okay. Do we kind of like each other? Do we want to do the second date? And when second date was like, I got to tell you something about me and see how they react. And some folks would stick around and some not so much. And I would have to be strong and be like, okay, well, if that's too much for this person, then I'm too much for that person. And that's okay. Like, there's going to be somewhere, someone out there for me someday. And it turned out there was, but it, it is, it feels like a, like you're wearing this backpack with these bricks in it. And you're kind of like, you know, you're kind of going along trying to live your life, but you feel like you've got this heaviness that you're carrying with you. And, you know, you just want to lighten that backpack a little bit if you can. And you're right, like talking to other survivors and feeling like you're not alone and you're not crazy and you're not weird. I mean, as a teenager, it's so hard feeling different. I think that's a universal, that we all as humans want to fit in. We want to have people that know us and understand us and accept us for who we are. And I felt like with my cancer and my, the hereditariness, like it's one thing to survive cancer. It's another thing to have to tell the world and then my kids might have it and then that and like, and then to find out in my research that I had secondary cancer risks. I didn't even touch on that yet. That was heavy too. So I added a bunch of bricks. Like I could get cancer again. Haven't I been through enough? (laughs) Why? Right? There's so many questions and it's so easy to spiral. And I did at times. I mean, I was depressed at times because I was really sad and heavy about the whole thing, that backpack. And, you know, I've ha- I had to find ways to lighten that. And there's therapy and there's exercise and all these different things. The ways of coping are so important to figure those out. And it's so, and it's easier when you have folks that are there that are smart and can help you navigate this stuff. And I'm so glad that folks have figured out that we need that for cancer survivors. Let me ask you to uh, draw the line that connects your experience with your vocation and your choice then to become a genetic counselor. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got there. Oh, that's a great question. So, it's so interesting how pieces fall into place sometimes. So my brother and his wife let me know that they were pregnant and I was overjoyed and panicked all in like the same breath. So I said, wait, I never found out about my cancer and could he be a carrier and all these things and I got to take care of my family, like take care of this. And so I ran out to see a genetic counselor because I said, oh, my friend said, oh, yeah, you can find this out. You just have to go to this, that Stanford has, has genetic counselors. You can go find this out. And I said, okay. So I went um, to the Stanford Cancer Center and I saw an amazing person named Carrie Kingham, who is still my favorite person. <laughs> she taught me about cancer genetics and she taught me about my genetics and she helped me through the process of finding my mutation and... 
we were able to figure out that I was the first one. It's called de novo. So I was the first one in my family and I was determined to be the last one in my family, given my lived experience. And so I went through this whole process. So I met with her. She taught me about, uh, about all about the, like I said, and she helped me kind of adjust to this and to understand my genetics. And I said, wow, that's what I needed back when I was in college. That's what I needed years and years ago to help me kind of understand. And this is a big part of who I am. And that educational piece and helping me understand the test that I was going to have, that meant so much to me. And at the time, I was working as an environmental consultant, and I loved explaining data to people. Most of the scientists were like, oh, I have to have a meeting. And I was like, yay, I get to be in a meeting. <laughs> I get to explain things to people. This is great. And so I realized that I could leverage my lived experience and leverage my joy in talking and explaining things to people and getting to know people, I could use it to help people just like myself. And as I've gone on, I realized there's just so many people like me who don't completely understand, and especially childhood cancer survivors. There are people out there that don't even know that they had retinoblastoma. They were never told, and they were never given that powerful piece of their his their lived experience and their history. And it's to me that it's a huge gift to be able to have that knowledge about what you have and be able to make informed choices about how you want to lead your life and how to keep yourself safe and how to take care of your children and things like that. So to me, I said, I got to do this. And so I went back to school and I became a genetic counselor and I'm, st I'm still a uh, part-time genetic counselor to this day. So I'm really so grateful for the care that I received and for the ability to use my strengths now to help others just like me. And not only are you a genetic counselor, but you're a mom of twins, third graders. So tell us a little bit about how you formed your family and how your family talks about cancer and genetic risk. Oh, that's another good question. Yes, I feel so lucky. Every day I look at my twins and I go, wow, I did it. It was a really long road. And I actually um, wrote a blog post about it, if anybody needs to look it up. Because decision-making when you have a hereditary cancer risk and knowing all the options, that it's really hard. I went to school for two years, and it was still hard. There's a lot out there. There's a lot to go through. So for me, with my lived experience and my feelings about cancer and my, my mental health, I needed to not pass on my cancer. I needed to not pass on my gene mutation. And I was pretty, we were pretty clear on that, me and my husband. So I did find somebody <laughs> who wanted to have children and go through this difficult process together. And we did IVF, in vitro fertilization. And so we uh, created embryos together. <laughs> and so I had to have egg retrievals. I think I went through six egg retrievals to get to those nine-year-old twins that I have. I had to be really persistent and strong. It's a hard road. I'm thousands of needle sticks. You have to be able to stick yourself with needles. Oh, my goodness. But in my mind, I would stick myself 10,000 times to save my child from going through what I did. 
And I know my dad would have. I know he would have. <laughs> he would have done anything to be able to save me from going through what I did. And so to me, I can do the work. I'm, I'm tough. <laughs> I can do it. So we did it. And so what we did is we added egg retrievals and then we made embryos and then they were tested. So they had to be biopsied. So you make a little hole and you take a few cells out and you sell, send those cells to a lab that makes a specialized probe based on my genetics and my parents as well. They needed to be able to um, figure out which chromosome was given to each embryo. Was it the chromosome with the non-working gene or the chromosome with the working gene? So you roll the dice and or you actually flip a coin and you can get heads multiple times in a row. So we made embryos and the majority of them either had a chromosome problem or had retinoblastoma. So it took us years. It took us five years to get there. So it was it was a long road. It was really hard, but... Oh, gosh, we could have a whole nother discussion about all of that. So in the end, I was left at the very end of all that road. With, I had two embryos. <laughs> and they said, Melissa, you've waited so long. Should we put in two embryos? And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't want to have twins. <laughs> and so we put in one embryo. I got twins. <laughs> I have identical twins. So I just can't even imagine what I have quadruplets, what would have happened if I had put those two in. <laughs> but so we transferred an embryo. And I don't know if I've told you about this part of the story. So we, um, we transferred the embryo. This is kind of a side story, but I think it's an interesting one. Right when we lost a friend of mine, she actually died of cancer, but she was a cystic fibrosis, double lung transplant survivor. Her name is Annabelle Stenzel. And she, I actually named one of my twins, middle name is Annabelle. Uh, it's named after her. So right when we were able to conceive my twins is when we lost my, uh, my friend and genetic counselor and colleague, Annabelle. And uh, I kept her memory alive. It was kind of amazing that through all the stuff that Annabelle was going through, she was super supportive with me and my journey with IVF and, um, and testing the embryos. They called it PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis was back in the day. Now they call it PGTM. So, but that's the, the testing that you do of the embryos. So in layman's terms, they tested the embryos and they have a fancy term for that, but that's what that was. So she was super supportive and then my my twins <laughs> we were able we were able to keep them healthy and it was twins is its own special journey <laughs> for sure but now yeah now they're nine years old and they're thriving so do you talk to the twins about mommy's cancer experience yes so i have the excitement of being able to take my eye in and out and not everybody with a cancer survivorship story has that ability to kind of show because it's very um show and tell for kids right so i am like a walking show and tell a lot of folks with retinoblastoma and other eye issues where they have a prosthetic eye it kind of depends on what type you have but mine comes out very easily and so i take mine out at night uh, when i was little I was hoping, there was the tooth fairy, I was hoping for the eye fairy. So I would take it out at night and put it under my pillow. 
But it turns out there is no eye fairy. <laughs> and every morning I would check under my pillow and there was my eye and I didn't get a I didn't get any money and I didn't get a new eye. I was really hoping that there would be an eye fairy. So but I started taking it out every night, which made it very hard for sleepovers. As a survivor of this thing, I made my life immensely harder by taking my eye out every night. But back to your question, which was, how did I talk to my children about this? And so I made it a point to take it out in front of them. I wanted them to know about my differences. I wanted them to be able to see that, okay, mommy's not like everybody else's mommy. And that opened the door to sort of talk about difference and talk about cancer. And I do, I told my kids from a very young age, I said, well, why does your eye come out? Well, my eye comes out because I had cancer when I was a baby. They said, oh. And I said, and I worked really hard to make sure that you didn't have cancer when you were a baby. And they said, oh, okay. And so I said, yeah, you know, mommy and daddy, we did special testing. Mommy had to use lots of needles. And we use science to keep you safe and they said oh okay so they've known probably oh since they were two maybe even like so I tried to open that door from the very beginning because my understanding and I, I feel like this and my lived experience I think confirms this is that when you normalize something from the from the get-go, when you talk about things from a young age, when you don't hide it, don't make it something that's a secret right? My life, my eye, my cancer, I decided I wanted to be an open book with the world and with my children as well. And we also have a great book that I recommend if you're trying to talk to kids about difference. It's uh, by um, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. It's called Just Ask. And that's another book that can help folks if they're thinking about, well, how do I talk about differences with my kids? Um, it talks about many different health conditions, some you can see and some you can't see. And I think that's what also can be hard as a cancer survivor is I mean, I'm lucky I can take an eye out and start a conversation. But a lot of us, there are hidden disabilities, hidden differences. And sometimes you survive cancer, but and your wounds are hidden. And for me, certainly my emotional wounds were hidden. And my eye looks pretty good as you look across the <laughs> at me. There's a lot of folks that are shocked that it's not real. Um, but in some ways, you want it's it, being able to have... A conversation about difference, I think, is so important. So that's kind of how I've dealt with it with my kids. Your eye looks pretty good to me. <laughs> and I've sat across from you so many times, and I still can't quite tell. You have to sort of remind me which one is the fake eye. You have so many wonderful points of wisdom here about, you know, talking about it openly in families and the visible and invisible scars, which I'm sure will resonate with many people who are listening. So my final question is to ask you a little bit about what kind of cancer survivorship care you need now, decades after your original cancer, but still at risk, as you've just told us, and also with perhaps some experiences and some body memories that other people may not have. Oh, it's such a good question. And I feel, I feel really lucky that I live in such a privileged place. So I am able to get 
amazing cancer survivorship care where I live here in the Bay Area in California. And um, we're lucky in California also down um, at USC, there's a retinoblastoma specific survivorship program. But I've actually put together my own team uh, here at Stanford spearheaded by Gary Kingham, as I mentioned. Genetic counselors are so amazing in coordinating care. And I now, um, I have a primary care provider who is a cancer survivor specialist. And it is just such, oh, it's just such a relief. It's a relief. That That backpack I was telling you about with all those bricks in it, I was able to take one out when I found um, Dr. Yerkowitz, who takes such good care of me and coordinates my care and listens to my um, listens to all my concerns and gets all my scans. So right now, I um, I get full body MRIs. I also get uh, mammograms and, and breast MRIs. And I, I recently actually thought I was going to need another breast biopsy. So I've had when you go looking when you have scans you find things that you have to investigate. And those are biopsies and and those are hard. And as a genetic counselor, I talked about that with patients and said, oh, you know, if we do these types of scans, we might find things. And then when you live through it yourself, you're like, wow, it's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot when you get that phone call and they're like, well, there's something in your lung. We need to see what we're gonna do. And then you have to advocate for yourself and say, okay, is it the kindergarten colds that I've been getting nonstop with my children is the reason why you saw something in my lung? Or do I have lung cancer, which is one of the risks with retinoblastoma? And I lived my life for many years flying on airplanes with a smoking section, right? So my your brain just goes in all these million directions and you have to fall back on those coping strategies and things. So it's been hard. It's hard to, um, yeah, to keep, you have to feel like you're kind of in charge of keeping yourself safe. So I feel so grateful now that I have this wonderful team, but yes, I'm getting, I'm getting scans every year. And with the pandemic, that was hard to get all that done and safely. And I could tell you about all sorts of trials and tribulations, but I don't think we have time for all of that. I have stories. We'll have to talk again sometime. (laughs) And and we will. I hope so. Uh, Melissa, it's been a wonderful hour just chatting with you and and hearing again and, you know, about your wisdom and your experiences. And you remind us that this is an ongoing challenge for you and that, you know, that wonderful moment when the ophthalmologist showed up at your door with Fluffy and declared you cured was not an end, really, to the cancer story that continues in so many ways. It's lovely to see you thrive. I'm delighted you're a mom and the kids are doing well. And I hope you'll come back sometime for another show. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation with Melissa Mills, mom, wise person, cancer survivor, genetic counselor. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. Your host today was Lydia Shapira. This podcast is produced by the Stanford Medicine EdTech team. Our producers for this episode were Lydia Shapira and Dila Baumgartner. Our creative director is William Botini. Our sound engineer is Bindu Madaba. This episode was edited by Grace Sextro. Our guest today was Melissa Mills. For more resources and information from our hosts and guests, 
please visit our podcast website at www.healthaftercancer.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.